Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Long before modern highways, there was an extensive network of Native American trails up and down the East Coast. Coming up, we'll learn about efforts in North Carolina to map old Cherokee trails. But first, the Civilian Conservation Corps. You've most likely heard of this group, or at least noticed their work at a state park or trail. The Great Depression-era work crew lasted almost 10 years under President Franklin D. Roosevelt. East Hampton resident and author Marty Podscotch has written a book about the Connecticut men who worked in the program at a time when it was difficult to find a job. Have you thought about the work of the Civilian Conservation Corps when you're outdoors? Did you have a family member who worked in the CCC? We want to hear from you. Email where we live at WMPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the studio Marty Podscotch, again, a historian, an East Hampton resident, and author of his latest book, Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. Marty, welcome to the show. Uh, great to be here. How did you get involved in all of this? I first got involved with the Civilian Conservation Corps when I was doing research on uh, books about the Adirondack fire towers. Uh, and somebody uh, had some pictures about the CCC boys working in the Adirondacks. So after I finished a book on the Catskills and two volumes on the uh, northern and southern uh, fire towers of the Adirondacks, I decided I was going to go from the men and women who were up in the fire tower watching for smoke and trying to slow down the fires or put out the fires to now the men who built up our forests uh, during the uh, 1930s. Now, I mentioned the CCC was part of the New Deal program under President Roosevelt. Your historian, tell us again what was the thrust of this program and how easily was it created back in 1933? Uh, it was easily uh, done because he did have control of both the House and the Senate, and he proposed it on March 27th to both the House and the Senate, and four days later it passed both the House and the Senate. And it was one of the many alphabet uh, programs that he proposed uh, to Congress and Senate and that were passed very quickly. And he wanted, he told Congress, I want 250,000 boys working in our state forest national parks by July 1st, and he chose the Army to be able to uh, provide food, clothing, and shelter to these uh, young boys, and uh, he had the Department of Labor uh, check to see what families in each of the towns and the states that needed uh, help that were on relief. Uh, most of these boys, too, had to quit school most of them by eighth grade, because they had to uh, find money to help their parents. Many of their fathers uh, either were out of work completely or maybe one day a week, and uh, they had to help. So they quit school, and uh, this was a big uh, 
uh, help to mm-hmm. families because the boys got paid a dollar a day. Uh, they did not keep the $30 a month, but $25 went straight home to the parents. That was and a lot of money in 1933. That was a lot of money. And uh, and they had $5 for spending money. But they had food, clothing, shelter, and medical care provided by the Army. And they signed up for a six-month period of time. And they could stay up to uh, two years. Now, you keep mentioning the boys, the so-called CCC boys. Who was exactly eligible for this? The boys would have to be single and out of school and uh, need of, they were from families that needed help. And they were boys, supposedly, you had to be 18 to 25, but there are quite a few boys who lied about their age. And one boy uh, in uh, in New York State, he said, Marty, my father fell off a roof of of the company and he couldn't work anymore. So uh, I went upstairs into my uh, bedroom, got my birth certificate, and they had a thing called Ink Eradicator. It was sort of like uh, peroxide, and he changed the date so that he was now 18 years old, but he was only 14 years old, and he signed up and worked in the battlefield, Saratoga, uh, cleaning that up, and then went out to Utah. So uh, they had to help their families. Now, we're going to hear from some of these uh, so-called CCC boys. Uh, One uh, West Hartford resident who's 102 years old, we'll hear from him in just a little bit. But I mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, the idea that when you go to uh, some of the state parks around the state, or even if you travel around the country, you may have seen the work of the CCC and not realized it. Tell us, as we go through the state of Connecticut, some of the places where they did their work. Um, Some of the places would be just right where I live in East Hampton, uh, Salmon River. Then you could do the hiking in Portland, um, Ashamasic State Forest. Then if you go way up to the northwestern part, you've got Kent, Connecticut, Kent Falls. Uh, Then um, down toward Killingworth, you've got uh, Chatfield Hollow State Park, which is gorgeous. That was one of the first Mm -hmm parks that was built and this is one of the places too we would like to uh, raise money to uh, uh, create a statue to honor the work of the CCC boys. Then you go to um, up towards Union they have um, state parks up there and my brain is not working (laughs) too well Uh, but the Natchog River too, Natchog State Forest all these uh, places for um, fishing and hiking. So when you're at these state parks, you may be on a trail they helped uh, create, or you'll see a building they helped build, or bridge. Um, tell us a little bit more. You mentioned Chatfield Hollow. That's one of my favorite state parks in, in Killingworth. When you walk uh, to the water mill, you can see a lot of the work that they did there. And one of the biggest things they did was take this small stream going through this valley and uh, over about two years, they built this huge dam that uh, holds back the water and created a beautiful uh, swimming area and also fishing area and ca- uh, places for uh, picnics along the, the, the banks. And there is also one building left, and it is a museum, a nature museum, right along the banks. And that's where we would like to erect a statue there. We have Our goal is 24,000, and we're at about 9,000 now. 
This is Where We Live. I'm speaking with Marty Podscotch, a historian, lives in East Hampton, and author of several books. His latest, Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, The History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. Uh, they also planted a lot of trees, the CCC, around the country. Um, you're mentioning the work here in Connecticut. There were 21 camps uh, when the program started? Yes, there were 21 camps total. And by the end of 1933, there were 15 camps uh, throughout the state. And they, uh, first of all, the boys lived in tents in July, and some of them even started before July 1st. So the boys lived in these army tents, and uh, they would then hire local carpenters to build the approximately 15 buildings. You had five barracks, and each camp had 200 men in it. So you had about 40 boys in each barracks. And they also elected uh, or were selected uh, a boy in that barracks that would be the leader. So he would get $45 a month. And he had to keep them in line, make sure the boys were up at 6 in the morning, the lights were out at 10, making sure, too, those uh, barracks uh, were clean as a whistle. Uh, And because if they weren't, when the Army uh, captain came, they would be in big trouble. They would not be able to go home maybe on a weekend pass or on Saturday night when uh, they would take truckloads of boys down into the local town to see a movie or to a dance. Uh, They would not be able to go or get KP duty. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the boys, too, on that barracks, uh, you would... There were selected assistant leaders. They were paid $36. And that leader and assistant leader, their job was to keep the 38 boys in line. And uh, some of the boys, too, they had other jobs, too. Some boys would just be typists, taking uh, care of all those Army records, which are today stored in uh, St. Louis. So any of the children of these CCC boys or relatives who would like to find out where was their dad or uh, where was their uncle, they could be able to get it from St. Louis and uh, possibly maybe we could be able to put something uh, on your website how they could get their dad's records. Now, were these uh, camps integrated at the time? Uh, Good question. Um, When I did my book about the Adirondack uh, Civilian Conservation Corps camps, I found that they were segregated. You had white camps, black camps, and there was one other camp, too, that was called uh, veterans camps. But if I go back uh, and tell you that Connecticut and New England was integrated, but you go down south, New York, Pennsylvania, and the rest of the south, they were segregated. When you went out west, like a lot of the boys from Connecticut, they needed workers. So one camp Quite a few of the camps in Colorado had 200 boys. They were all from Connecticut. They would go out there for six months. If they wanted you know, another six months, they could sign up uh, for a total of two years. And uh, if I go back into that camp setting, think of those five barracks. Then there was an officer's building where they kept the records, etc. Then there would be a mess hall which uh, had connected to it the kitchen. So this is where the boys would have their uh, breakfast. Uh, If they were working in the forest, the food was uh, brought to them uh, by truck, and then they came back, then they would have their dinner, uh, or supper, you call it, 
in that mess hall, and the boys would all be uh, sitting, six boys to a picnic table, 200 boys, and they could have as much food as they wanted. Then there was also a uh, clinic. So if a boy did get sick, each camp, if you could just imagine this, had an army doctor, just like we have in schools. They have nurses. Mm -hmm. Well, they had an army doctor to take care of uh, illnesses. And if they were really sick, like one of the people you're going to interview, he drove the ambulance, they would take to the nearest army hospital, which was uh, Camp Wright on Fisher's Island. So uh, Peter would drive his um, ambulance all the way to New London, put the boys on the ferry, and go to Fort Wright because they had an army hospital there. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Uh, we're speaking with Marty Podscotch, an author of Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. We're going to learn more about the experiences of some of these CCC boys still living today, including a 102-year-old West Hartford resident. His story after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up later in the show, we'll learn about old Cherokee trails in North Carolina and efforts to map them. But right now we're talking about the CCC. There were 21 Civilian Conservation Corps camps in Connecticut during the Great Depression. Nearly 3 million young men joined the Corps nationwide, learning vital skills while helping support their families. East Hampton, Connecticut resident Marty Podscotch researched the stories of the men from our state who worked in the CCC. He's in the studio with us today to talk about his latest book, Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. But first, some of those so-called CCC boys are still alive today. Where We Live producer Jeff Tyson went to the home of Michael Popovich to hear about his experience working in the CCC in 1933. Popovich is 102 years old now and lives in West Hartford. Here's his interview. Questions and answers. You, you can ask me a question. I'll see if I can answer. Let's do that. So take me back to your teen years and... Yeah. Uh, and you were born in Waterbury, is that Yes, right? that's right. I was born in Waterbury. What was your hometown like? And tell me about your family. Oh, the family. Oh, we had uh, five sisters, one brother, and myself. I was the older one. We all shipped in together to make the house run. It was a five-acre plot which we owed quite a bit of money on it. <laughs> and, of course, we did all our vegetables and and what, uh, fruit and all that sort of stuff just to survive. But, I mean, there was a lot of other people doing the same thing, so we were kind of everybody in the same category. And then during the Depression, how, yeah, how, that, did, how did that affect your family? That, that's it. Right, yeah. Well, I was just about old enough to get a job, but couldn't get in. And my dad couldn't get a job either. Well, he worked there for a while, and then they laid off. Then went into the WPA. I remember working one day for him because he didn't feel good. But anyway, he got a job later on after I got in the, in the, in the CCC. Yeah, so... When did you find out about the the CCC? Was it through your father? Well, through my, my my father, yeah. Apparently, he knew about it. Yeah, and uh, like I say, he must have talked to some of the other because some of the boys also went. I don't remember their name, but 
We all started in Waterbury, then went to New Haven, then back to back to New London, and that's where it all started from there. Yeah, and this was your first time away from home? Pardon? Was this your first time away that's from home? That's right, first time away from home. First time I saw a real ocean, too. <laughs> so it was quite a, quite a rig. I don't know what happened to me. Picked out me. I, I was supposed to distribute all the army shoes. This was all World War One army stuff: yeah. clothes, shirts, jackets, uh, shoes, stockings, and uh, even a campaign hat. Really? Uh, yeah, that was a stupid thing. <laughs> it looked like a like a, a dish upside down. But anyway, about a week or so later, we uh, got on the on the old Liberty truck. Oh, geez, I'll never forget that. Had solid rubber tires, and we drove that. Some guy drove it all the way from from uh, New London all the way up to Danbury, and that's where that's where the camp was. It's adjacent to Squance Pond, okay. and we got there. It was all army stuff, so we had to put up tents. Eight. eight people to a tent. Did you know how to put up a tent that first time? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, we didn't know that. It was, it was a squad tent, they call it. Eight people were in it and uh, got all that together. And, of course, there all no houses around or anything. But uh, we made out all right until the rains came. Then, then then it was a problem We were because we were on the side of a hill and the rain would come down and in between your cot. Oh yeah, everything was cots and blankets and everything. And uh, we had little tricks we used to play by poking a stick in the hole in, in the ground and diverting the water to the next guy instead of coming down your way. <laughs> yeah, but we had a lot, of, a lot of little jokes that we'd play on each other. Yeah. Uh, and, and tell me about the other boys that you were. Were they oh, from all over? Oh, were they oh, yeah. all they, walks of life? They were all over Connecticut, from Connecticut, yeah. But I don't remember any of their names or or where they were from. But uh, I do remember one guy. That, uh, at night he snored like a son of a gun. So what we what we did is the, in the middle of the night he picked up the cot and put him right next to the, uh, the Squance Pond. So if he jumped off of it and right going into the pond. But I, I thought that was a dirty trick, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was your day-to-day like? What was your oh, schedule? day-to-day. Yeah, of course, you woke up with Reveille. The guy had a whole trumpet there. And we got up and had a breakfast, which was made by a cook there. And, of course, we washed our own mess kits and, and canteens that the they were also army issue, and after that we went to work. The area where we were must have been a forest fire about ten years before, and this whole idea was reforestation. So we had to go up along the trail. There's some trails that were made previously, or we, if there wasn't any, we'd make them, and we'd cut cut the woods. Away, make a trail, and then uh, clear ten feet on each side of the trail of bushes or anything like that. And we had our job was uh, to get rid of it and uh, 
burn it or whatever. Yeah, mostly burned. Yeah. And if there was a big stone in the way, we'd have to move that. And if it was very big, we'd, we'd actually have to drill a hole and blast it into smaller pieces. And uh, so you learned how to use dynamite. Is yes, that right? That's right. We used to, yeah, dynamite and and uh, what do you call it? Drill a stone by hand. And uh, I was lucky. I I don't know how I got it, but I, we had a small jackhammer, which which was handy and. Or sometimes we just use dynamite, put it underneath the stone, and uh, what do you? Well, we used to use it, call it a mud pack, and put mud all around it, and then hide someplace, let it off, and blast it off, and it would roll into the squans pond, you know, from the hill. Yeah. And that was that was an easy job, but uh, most of the work was cutting branches down and uh, burning them and smoothing out the pa uh, a real path for a truck to go by or a fire truck, but if you want to call it. These skills that you were learning, the, the jobs that you had, yes. were these, these were all new skills for you back home? Yeah, never knew it, never did it before. Yeah. No, a lot of people got hurt because of it. Got you hurt. know, cut with an axe, chopping, uh, trees down or something like that, or shovels and picks and you know, all that re regular construction work during the old ages. <laughs> no, we didn't have any any tractor or anything like that. Yeah. Did you have some training before or were no, you sort of thrown no, into no, the work? I was too young for that, yeah, <laughs> no. Well, just on a farm, yeah. we always pick and shovel there also. Did the army train you though when they brought you to the camp did they spend some no, time teaching no, you or no they training. threw you into the job you, know, you go right into the job yeah no training yeah you just they just give you a lot of ideas how to keep safe that's about it mm -hmm. but some of the stuff there was nice i mean the beautiful weather and everything like that you mentioned that this was sort of a, a sad state of affairs for you. When you look back on this time, do you yeah, think yeah. that... Yeah, I mean, it was kind of sad because you were away from home. This is the first time I was ever away from home. And you get kind of lonely by yourself there. Yeah. yeah. What did you do on the weekends? Right. What did you do on the weekends or in the evenings? Oh, oh sing a lot. Sing a lot. Play. There was a fellow that had a banjo or a ukulele or something. But we sang a lot and... Play cards, a lot of cards playing, and uh, baseball. We had baseball out there, was a lot of land there in the park, and we, we, that, that was about it. Swimming, we did a lot of swimming there. Of course, right next to right on the pond itself. Oh, yeah, one month, I can't remember, they had a, I don't know if they still have it, the, the Danbury Fair. We had, we went to the Danbury Fair, the whole bunch of us walked it from the camp to the fair, which is 10 miles <laughs> one way. That's how big the Candlewood Lake is, is yeah. which is man-made. And uh, we had a lot of fun there. Not many people spent money because they didn't have any. <laughs> right. But it was a nice time. When you look back at your time in the CCC and and when you think about the the CCC as a whole yeah, the yeah. program President Roosevelt yes, started yes, it yeah, do you started. think it was a good thing for the country do you do you oh yes it? absolutely it put 
a lot of people into little jobs, and I think, like I say, a lot of them the first time out from home, and uh, I think it was very educational. No, I wouldn't say profitable because at the end of the week or the month, they uh, they give you five dollars. The rest would go to your parents. Yeah. So that that was kind of a heartbreaker, but. Well, you didn't spend too much money out in the woods. No, no one to spend it on. So you were doing it for your families. That's right. Family. Absolutely, yes, yes. Yeah. I remember after I got discharged, there was no way to get home. Okay. So I had a chisel ride all the way from Danbury to Waterbury. You hitched the ride, you said? You hitched the ride, yeah. And that, that was quite a thing there. And you're with army clothes. A lot of people didn't know where you were. I know that there, you know, the CCC doesn't exist anymore. But I, I know a lot of people advocate that that the that the government or or, or various states should have these sorts of programs. You again. know what? That would be a good idea, I think, because uh, it, it would take a lot of people, uh, teenagers especially, off the street. And and jobs that would be uh, uh, helpful for later on because you learn a lot. Not only that, uh, how to do it, how to mix with people, and that that means quite a bit. This is where we live. You just heard an interview with 102-year-old Michael Popovich of West Hartford. He sat down with Where We Live producer Jeff Tyson to talk about his days working in the Civilian Conservation Corps 84 years ago. Do you remember stories from family members who worked in the CCC? Have you noticed their work at local state parks? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I just heard from also uh, Marty Podscott. She's an author of the book, Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. Um, you were smiling a lot while we were listening to the interview with uh, 102-year-old Michael Popovich. Um, what stands out to you about his story? And you've interviewed lots of these so-called CCC boys. Uh, what stands out is that he still remembers uh, all of these things that has hap- happened to him. A hun- you know, he's 102 years old. And uh, the other boys, too, these stories about how they helped their families. Uh, it, in unbelievable how they had to quit school. And uh, many of them went straight into World War II. They were prepared by the Army. They knew how to make their beds. They knew how to take orders. They were also leaders, too. Many of these boys who, when, when they went into World War II, became sergeants if they were leaders. Um, so those were the big things. And as uh, Michael said, I learned how to get along with each other. They learned skills. They learned surveying, uh, driving trucks, uh, so many different skills or uh, running the office, keeping track of the records or being a cook in the um, uh, mess hall. Uh, many of these boys were sent to army uh, camps, uh, big camps, maybe uh, Fort Dix or to Fort Wright, and were taught how to uh, cook for 200 men three times a day. I mentioned earlier there were 21 of these CCC camps in Connecticut, but there was one exclusively for for veterans? Yes. uh, The Niantic camp in 1933 was a veterans camp. 
Well, it turned out when Hoover was president in 1932, the veterans of World War I were promised a bonus. It was supposed to come in 1940, approximately. But when the Depression hit, these veterans didn't have jobs. So they marched on Washington, and they asked President Hoover and Congress, please give us our bonus now. We need it. They had their tents set up. They marched, just like we have marchers today in Washington. And Hoover sent General MacArthur, drove them out, shot at them. Some men were even uh, uh, shot and uh, killed. They burned their tents. So the following year, 33, they said, hey, we got a new president. So they marched again. And who do you think Roosevelt sent? Eisenhower? No, it was Eleanor. Eleanor drove in her limousine there, sat down and talked to the boys. Now, what is the problem? Well, my husband doesn't want any problems, wants to help you out, so he started camps throughout the United States that were just for veterans of World War I and also Spanish-American War. So uh, the one at Niantic was started out as a veterans camp, Later on, the one at Mohawk for State Forest, too, in 38, got the veterans that were up there uh, working on the Winooski Dam. Mm-hmm. They came down and then worked there at that camp. How many of these CCC boys are around today? To my knowledge, in Connecticut, there are seven that I know that I interviewed for my book, but there are other people uh, one of the guys, uh, Gary Potter from uh, Bristol, he just sent me a clipping of a man from Bristol, just died in June. He was also a CCC boy. So I've given, you know, probably a hundred talks throughout the state, but there's still boys that are still alive that, you know, have stories to tell. And I wish I could be able to uh, gather those stories. And many of the children whose fathers worked in the CCC just would love to know where their father was. Uh, Jody Rell, when I was at the CCC Museum in uh, Stafford Springs, she said, Marty, if I only asked my father what he did, he, she said, he did something in Virginia or North Carolina. So I gave her the uh, directions how to uh, call up the Army place there in St. Louis. This is an extensive book that you've written. Again, uh, Marty Potscotch here on Where We Live. Uh, his latest book, Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. We heard uh, a little bit from Michael Popovich. Tell us about um, another CCC boy, uh, Joe Arnold. Joe Arnold has an unbelievable story. His father and uh, mother, they had a house in uh, outside of New York City. Uh, it was the home of uh, the guy who wrote Trees. I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. And uh, he had a great roofing business. Uh, Then the Depression hit. Joe Arnold's father lost everything. He took the five children and his wife to Connecticut, and he just could not cope with this. He left his family, and Joe uh, was a uh, ninth grader. He said, Marty, I had to quit school. So he quit school, got a job working at the Housatonic Meadows in Sharon, Connecticut. And uh, after six months, he signed up for uh, Colorado. A lot of these boys, oh boy, to go out west. So he signed up and he stayed there for a year and a half. And uh, every 
every end of six months, they had a week off. So he'd say, hey, his buddy would say, Joe, let's go down to Mexico. So they went down to the Grand Junction uh, Railroad Terminal there and looked at the boxcars. Oh, this one's going to Mexico. So they would hop on and go to Mexico, come back after six months. His buddy would say, hey, Joe, let's go to San Francisco. So you could just imagine Joe and his buddy sitting on a boxcar going over the Rocky Mountains into San Francisco, seeing this uh, fantastic city, and then losing his buddy, (laughs) and then coming back (laughs) to get back uh, time so they wouldn't be A-W-O-L. Oh, then he came back after the war. He wanted to get his GED. So he took a test, and Joe said, well, what do I have to do now to get my uh, high school diploma? And she said, Joe, you're not going to get your high school diploma. You're going to college. And he went to um, the beginning college of New Haven College, studied engineering. Later on, he became the head of the department. And the rags to riches Mm -hmm. stories, and all because of the CCC had a great influence on them. And that was a theme that you heard time and time again. Not only were these young boys learning valuable skills outdoors, they were able to send money home to family, they had food to eat, but it led them on a successful course uh, later in life. Right. They were able to, uh, another great guy too, uh, was this poor boy from Norwich. He went to Stafford Springs, and uh, then he went to World War II, got a, a degree with the GI Bill, went to Philadelphia to work, came back to Norwich, and he founded Mohegan Sun. Uh, so This was Ralph Sturgis? Is Ralph that Sturgis, mm-hmm. yes. And I got his story there in 2007. He was at a reunion at the Stafford Springs uh, Museum, one of the best museums in the whole United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, got his story, and he said, Marty, come down to the... Uh, my office. I'll show you all the carvings I've done in marble. Then found out he had passed away. Mm. But I did, was lucky to get his story down. We just have a few more minutes left, but I I wanted to ask, uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps ended around 1942. What were the efforts through the years to bring back this kind of program? There have been uh, efforts just here in Connecticut during the 80s. One of the programs was the YCCs, and I've met a few boys and girls who, uh, through uh, high school, they worked in our state parks, building picnic tables, doing trail work, etc. Then I went to Missoula, Montana. I met the Montana CCCs. These are uh, young boys and girls who work for about seven or eight months, and then they get a stipend and plus a place to stay, and they do work on our state parks and national parks. California also has it. So when Jody Rell was governor, she heard about this. She said, I'm going to try it. I think she had about 20 kids for one summer, boys and girls working in the state parks, but because of budget cuts, et cetera, just like our beautiful museum there in Stafford Spring has been uh, sort of closed. It's open. If anybody who would be interested in going to it, they could call the DEEP and they will open it on special occasions.
We just got a Facebook message from a listener uh, who writes, uh, Donald writes, My father worked on the Merritt Parkway in Fairfield Hills Hospital during the 30s with the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, So a lot of people have a connection uh, to this, again, this uh, jobs relief program uh, back during uh, the time of of Roosevelt and the Great Depression. Um, I wanted to thank Marty Podscotch, a historian and author of Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, The History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. You brought a lot of memorabilia with you. We've taken pictures. We're going to post that on our website. But if someone was listening and they wanted to help get their story, their maybe their grandfather's story uh, to you, how could they contact you? Uh, they could do it two ways. They could call me, 860-267-2442, or uh, by email, my last name, podscotch, P-O-D-S-K-O-C-H, at comcast.net. I should ask before we go... Um, any family connection to the CCC? None at all. <laughs> it was just, uh, I just love gathering these stories. Uh, you know, as I said, I went from fire towers mm-hmm. to the CCC, and now I'm in Rhode Island. If anybody has any parents or family members in Rhode Island, I'm doing that, and I'm also gathering information for a book about traveling to all the 169 towns of Connecticut. Well, you certainly keep busy. We'd love to have you back on. Thank you so so much again, Marty Podscotch. Great to be here. Thanks. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up next, we hear about efforts to learn about Native American trails that still survive in the woods today. That's after the break. And we want to hear from you, too. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, during World War II, the Nazis experimented on Polish women at a concentration camp outside of Berlin. After the war, socialite and Connecticut resident Caroline Faraday helped bring dozens of these women to the U.S. for medical treatment. On the next Where We Live, we'll talk with the author of Lilac Girls, a novel based on Faraday, and we'll learn more about Faraday's home, a landmark in Bethlehem, Connecticut. Join us. That's coming up on Monday. But first, as you walk through local woods, did you ever think about the trails or paths that existed long before the settlers came to North America? There are efforts to recognize and map the trails of Native American tribes. Our next two guests know quite a bit about them. They're both North Carolina residents. First, joining us by phone is Lamar Marshall, Resource Director for Southeast Heritage. It's a group dedicated to reconstructing historical landscapes. Lamar, welcome to the show. I'm pleased to be here. Also on the phone with us is Dr. Brett Riggs, a research archaeologist and Sequoia Distinguished Professor of Cherokee Studies at Western Carolina University in Cullowee, North Carolina. Dr. Riggs, welcome to the show. Hello. Glad to be here. I understand that Lamar's walked a lot of these trails, but uh, Dr. Briggs over at Western Carolina uh, University, you've studied uh, these trails, also uh, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee uh, Nation for some time. Tell us about the trails and how they were developed. Well, if you think about the trail system or this, this whole matrix, this network that cross-cut the entire continent, many of these were founded upon what had initially been the animal paths that took the routes of least resistance across the landscape. And when the first peoples entered this continent, they already found established routes used by what they would view as game animals that interlinked the entire area. And so many of the oldest trails that native peoples used 
were already in place when they arrived and found them. And Native peoples, particularly Cherokee folks here in the mountains, often thought of these trails as being an integral part of the landscape, not necessarily even of, of a cultural construction, but something that was an inherent and implicit part of this landscape, such that everything was viewed as being held together by paths. Even the routes that fish in the water took, they followed certain trails. Everything was conceptualized in, in terms of trails, so that even in a broader sense, you know, if you look at, at the construction of the of the native cosmos, the upper world, the world above, is linked by trails. The Milky Way is a trail. So these trails were seen as being a very natural part of the landscape and a very important part of the landscape to Native peoples. Now, Lamar, also on the phone with us, uh, you've been surveying these trails for some time, walking many of them. How did this start for you? Well, I guess about 50 years ago, um, I started really studying the old maps, records, and journals so I could produce modern maps <clears throat> with the old trails and trail corridors, Native American towns and settlements. But uh, when I was very young, I was very fascinated with the lifestyle of Native Americans because I could see, you know, we, we, we grew up in a corporate world and structured, and the, you have to go to work every day. And the, the Native Americans seemed to be one of the freest peoples on Earth before they became involved in trade with the, other, with the Europeans. Dr. Riggs was talking about uh, how these uh, trails uh, and the meaning of the trails in Native American culture. But when you're looking and going into the woods to try to find some of these old trails, are many of them covered up now? I mean, when we look at um, our modern transportation system, some of the roads in our states may have uh, followed these trails as well? Absolutely. I would say that uh, there's very few intact premier segments of the trails left. Where you find your best examples, if they're still around, are on national forests, on public lands, because they've obviously not been developed and they were kind of set aside. But the native trails, I'd call it the blueprint or the circuitry of our modern road system, because uh, you'd have an animal trail, it became a Cherokee trail, and then the first 12 white settlers would come in and they would widen this, these trails into wagon roads or turnpikes, and then uh, later on they got paved and, and et cetera. So... It's an ancient road system that's been here for a long, long time. This is where we live. Today we're looking at efforts to uh, find old Native American trails and map them. Uh, on the phone with us is Lamar Marshall, Resource Director for Southeast Heritage uh, and a North Carolina resident. Um, he's walking a lot of these trails, helping to find them, old Cherokee trails uh, in western North Carolina. Also on the phone, Dr. Brett Riggs, a Sequoia Distinguished Professor of Cherokee Studies at Western Carolina University in Cullowee, North Carolina. Uh, Dr. Riggs, how are you working with Lamar um, as he's finding these trails, comparing old uh, maps and, and uh, working uh, with um, what he's finding on the ground. What are you doing in terms of helping him with this project? Well, we work with many of the same resources. I'm primarily involved in documentation efforts for the Trail of Tears National Historic Trail. And in western North Carolina, we have a uh, remarkable set uh, or remarkable sets of documentation that, that assist us in that effort. So I'm focused on landscape reconstruction for a moment in time, whereas Lamar has a, a much broader view there. But the work that we do, each informs the other uh, in terms of our understanding of the landscape because 
the landscape that existed in the 1830s at the time of the forced Cherokee deportation from the southern mountains is, of course, a landscape that has developed for millennia. And Lamar's work helps to bring into focus the entire transportation network that was then used and exploited at the time of the Cherokee removal. And, and how are you both working with uh, members of the Cherokee tribe? What is their reaction to this project? Again, um, mapping out uh, these old trails, uh, land that was once theirs that was taken away. Well, I think what we see is, is that the lands for particularly the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, a federally recognized tribe here in, in uh, the southern Appalachians, that their world, their landscape has been so circumscribed historically through the 19th century and into the 20th centuries, that what our efforts accomplish is, is to give folks sort of access to their historical landscapes again, so to create at least a um, cognitive reclaiming of this landscape as theirs, this place that was theirs for hundreds and thousands of years. And Lamar Marshall, again, your resource director for Southeast Heritage, I believe some of the the members of this group are also uh, members of of the Cherokee tribe. Uh, Their reaction to your work and how they're contributing to it? Well, I'll say that uh, the last eight years I've been funded by the Cherokee uh, Eastern Band through their Cherokee Preservation Foundation. And Brett Riggs and I I both are, are involved in their GIS program. So what I'm doing is taking eight years of work and and building story maps that be online that can be used by teachers, by anybody in the tribe, and, and, and other people also, uh, where they can uh, you know, have a graphic, interactive map. And, uh, let's put it this way. You get online, and there's a story, say, of a Cherokee Territorial Claim 1700 in the ecology. Uh, these story maps have a panel on one side, and you can have videos, uh, images, graphics, uh, connections to other sites, and then the the bigger part of the screen has a map that is interactive. You can zoom in, and there's the Cherokee trails, there's the towns, and they can actually get in there and, and you know, move around. This is an incredible resource. And I'd asked this earlier, Lamar, uh, about the process, and you said that you compare a lot of the old maps. When you're out in the woods, are you literally uh, drawing what you're seeing in journals, and, and how do you translate all that you're discovering um, to then w- work with Dr. Riggs in this digital mapping project? Well, as a background in surveying, I carry a field book with, my, with me and a, G, a GPS, of course. But first of all, you have to uh, determine where a trail might be or might not be. Uh, I use uh, historic maps from before 1700 to, to present. We dig out early surveys where they actually went out and surveyed the tracts of land, and it says cross the Indian Trail at this point. And you got two different systems of the meets and bounds in North Carolina, but then Alabama, where I worked, uh, the land is in sections, townships, and ranges, and the surveyors were meticulous sometimes to detail where a trail crossed. They got oral testimonies and chronicles, and one of the most valuable things is to find diaries and journals, particularly some of the military journals, that document mile by mile exactly, like in, in 1761, 1776, how they, where they traveled and, and, and described the landscape. Mm-hmm. And so I think all of this determine where a trail might be, and if it goes down a valley, I start on the ridgetop, and I'll transect from one ridgetop to the other to see if I can find an original trail in the bottom. In many cases, they've been destroyed by logging operations, so it's uh, when you find a premier section, it's a big find. And then, I, of course, GPS it, come back and uh, put it into GIS, 
and document it. Sounds like really extensive work. Anything like this being done in other parts of the country, uh, Dr. Riggs? There is, in fact, really all across our country, many efforts that are sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service uh, and the National Park Service to document at least some of the more important transportation routes across the country. For instance, the um, National Park Service has a long-distance trails office that manages historic trailways across the country. So you see El Camino Real, the Santa Fe Trail, and various routes like that that are important to our history as a nation. And I think Lamar and I would, would assert that these native trails that you know, predate the, the European arrival are equally important to the history and heritage of our nation. After you turn in the data to uh, the Cherokee Nation, uh, what's next for you, Lamar? I know you're a conservationist. <clears throat> well, I'm going to continue my historical research and continue the same work because uh, in the last eight years I've got over 100,000 digital images of archives, historic maps, and um, maybe I'll do, you know, write some e-books or something. <laughs> Well, I want to thank Lamar Marshall, Resource Director for Southeast Heritage. Uh, He lives in North Carolina, and we appreciate uh, your time talking about the work you're doing, Lamar. Thank you. You're welcome. Also, Dr. Brett Riggs, Lamar is working with him to uh, digitize these maps. Again, the data will be um, given over to the Cherokee Nation. Dr. Brett Riggs, a Sequoia Distinguished Professor of Cherokee Studies at Western Carolina University in Cullowhee, North Carolina. Dr. Riggs, uh, very important work. Thank you so much for telling us a little bit about it. Thank you, Lizzie. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Check out WNPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.